In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. As many of our regular listeners know, this podcast is the brainchild of Florida Bar's Standing Committee on Professionalism, or more affectionately known as SCOPE. SCOPE was established in 1996 along with the creation of the Florida Bar's Center for Professionalism. It is currently made up of a group of 46 bar members from various areas of practice and various areas of the state from a diverse background. Its mission, which I hope you have gathered from listening to the podcast, is to promote the fundamental ideals and values of professionalism within the legal system and to instill those ideals of character, competence, commitment, and civility in all those persons serving and seeking to serve in the Florida Bar. In other words, SCOPE promotes the idea that good lawyering includes being a good person. SCOPE is made up of five subcommittees, including a mentoring initiatives working group, which promotes mentoring through programs and articles, the education working group that assists local bar associations and schools in promoting professionalism panels and events. There's also the awards group, which promotes nominations for and selects the awardees for professionalism awards, such as the Hoovler Award, the Group Professional Award, and the Law Faculty and Administrator Award. The Mental Health and Wellness Working Group publishes articles and provides CLEs, which have been helpful with mental health tips throughout the pandemic. And last but not least, the Gender Bias Working Group, which distributes information and provides training on gender bias-related issues, such as implicit bias, gender-neutral hiring and evaluation criteria, and conflict avoidance and resolution. It's this subcommittee where the idea for the podcast was born. In this last episode of the season, I have the honor of introducing you to the female members of the judiciary who serve on SCOPE. This includes Circuit Court Judges Dahlia Weiss, Carolyn Bell, and Gisela Laurent, County Court Judge Maisha Darrow, and Federal Magistrate Patricia Barksdale. As with our past guests, these women share their stories of how and why they became judges and why civility in the legal profession is so important. So without further ado, first up is our conversation with the Honorable Mayesha Darrow, who has been recently appointed as a county court judge in Miami-Dade County. Welcome, Judge Darrow, and thank you for being on Never Contemplated. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored and so excited to be here. This is my first podcast, so thank you. Well, you just recently were appointed um, by the governor. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um, how you ended up in law school. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Fort Polk, Louisiana. It's in central Louisiana. It's a, a military base that was there. Um, the surrounding community was Leesville, uh, the town. 
Uh, my mother was in the military for a number of years and she was stationed in Fort Polk. And after she got out of the military, she settled down there. Um, so I grew up in uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. Um, I, as a child, always talked about wanting to be a lawyer. I used to say I wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor. Um, and then after a few years, I realized it was going to be tough to be a doctor if I did not like the sight of blood or <laughs> or pus or th- things like that. So I didn't think I would do very well because at the time, that's what I thought of as a, for what doctors do. Um, but, you know, I was always one of those very just... Um, I was an outgoing child. I love to be involved in things. I love meeting new people. I love to talk. And I was always fascinated with the law. I always felt like, well, if I knew the law, I could help people. And I feel like that kind of carried over even in my career, as we'll talk about um, my career in public interest work. But um, I knew I wanted to go to law. I wanted to be a lawyer. And I decided probably when I was a teenager that I wanted to go to Howard University Law School. I would watch... um, C-SPAN or see different judges on TV that looked like me. And I would always see they would have their names and it would have the school that they came from. And I would always see Howard Law University or Howard University School of Law on there. And so I decided, you know, I really want to go to that law school in Washington, D.C. You actually got both of your degrees from Howard. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. And but I end up getting both degrees because I wanted the law degree from Howard. <laughs> um, I actually got invited to visit Howard um, my senior year, the uh, undergrad, and I just fell in love with the school. I just thought it was great. I felt like I was at home. The professors, my academic advisors, everybody was so wonderful. So I went there and I majored in the school of business. Howard had a great business school program, um, had a lot of great opportunities, a lot of great experience. I even debated going into uh, corporate America versus going to law school because things went so well in undergrad. But I held true to my love for the law and I went to law school at Howard. Well, um, for some of our listeners who are not familiar with Howard, Howard is located in Washington, D.C. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And it's a, it's an HBCU, right? So, yes, yes. And how Which is that experience? How was that experience for you? It was a great experience for me. And so HBCU meaning it's a historical black college or university. Right. Um, Sorry. No, no problem. But it was I grew up in a um, town where it was not a lot of people that looked like me. And I went to school with the people. Not everyone looked like me or not a lot of people looked like me. Um, So going to Howard was just this empowering experience where, you know, Rates wasn't a factor. It became, you know, people looked like me from all different areas of life, from different states, different countries. And so you, I really learned so much about diversity, even amongst Black people. And just the, the spirit of Howard, the legacy, and uh, you would just have these great people that would be teaching you and alumni that would come back to guide you and provide you with opportunities. And so it was just very empowering. And it just made you feel like you could take on the world, you know, attending Howard University. Well, lucky for us, you did not end up in corporate America. And you ended up being uh, going to the US Attorney's Office. Mm -hmm. What um, prompted you to come to Florida? Out of uh, when I was in law school, I actually started at the Miami State Attorney's Office. The state attorney did some interviews in Washington, D.C. in my law school. I think it was in the Georgetown area, I remember, um, doing an interview there. And I got um, extended an offer. And at the time, I knew that it was a three-year commitment if I came to Miami. I'd never been to Miami before, but I had heard about the program 
for the state attorney's office in Miami that it was a great program. Um, if you want to be a good lawyer in any area that you choose to go into, you know, starting at a state attorney's office really just provides you a solid foundation and great training. So my thing was, I'm going to come here, I'm going to do my three years, and then I'm going to leave. Um, so I ended up coming to Miami, joined the state attorney's office, um, had a very um, successful career at the Miami state attorney's office, had so many great opportunities. But when I was there, when my three years was coming up, my mother passed. And when my mother passed, it kind of just threw me into this whirlwind of, you know, what's next, what I'm going to do. Um, I grew up in a single parent home. So it was always my mother, myself and my brother. And so she was always my biggest cheerleader, biggest supporter. So when that happened, it just really just threw me for a loop. And so I needed I had to figure out what next, because what I had planned was no longer necessary, I guess. So I stayed at the Miami State Attorney's Office and I became a division chief. And it was an awesome experience. I uh, got some great experience um, trying different types of homicide cases, violent crime cases, supervising attorneys. Uh, and so it was a great opportunity there. And then at some point I decided, you know what, I really would love to work for the U.S. Attorney's Office because I enjoyed being a prosecutor. I felt like I could really make a difference as a prosecutor in the system. So I applied for the Southern District of Florida U.S. Attorney's Office and I was given an opportunity to go work there. Oh, and uh, what kind of cases did you do at the U.S. Attorney's Office? U.S. Attorney's Office, I did quite a few violent crimes as well. And also, too, I've got to do a more white collar crimes. So a lot of fraud cases, a lot of fraud <laughs> happens in South Florida. So stayed very busy doing complex fraud litigation. And was that different from the state attorney's office? I know that you were when you left there that you were kind of in a, a mentor position, a supervisory position. What about at the mm-hmm. U.S. Attorney's Office? Mm-hmm. At the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, I kind of went through a similar path in the sense like I started out, I went to the appellate unit, worked on brief writing, um, then went to major crimes and worked on different types of criminal type cases. And then I went to economic crimes. And that's when I dealt with white collar crimes. So I had not dealt with white collar crimes when I was at the state attorney's office. So that was a major difference and gave me a whole new area of opportunity to explore and expose me to white collar type cases. And then I did go on to um, become the special counsel at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I did um, go into the executive division, which at the state attorney's office, I was in a supervisory position. And at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I had the opportunity to work in the executive division there. Well, I know that the Miami Herald put out a list of the top 2020 most influential and powerful Black professionals in Miami and that you were on that list. And one of the reasons is because you are a mentor for other um, African-Americans, for other women, and also for just lawyers in general. Who are your mentors in the legal community when you were coming up? Mm-hmm. Starting out, it was definitely uh, Judge Andrea Wolfson, who I know has been on the podcast before. She was my division chief when I first became a uh, felony attorney at the Miami State Attorney's Office. So I always say, you know, I look to her to see an example of a female prosecutor, someone that was very sharp, um, very prepared. You know, I tried my first case, my first homicide case with her, my first felony case period I tried with her. And, you know, I just learned how to analyze cases, how to investigate the questions to ask. And so she was definitely one and still today is one of my best role models. She was a great interview and a very inspirational to me as well. Yeah. So I know that you are on 
the standing committee uh, of professionalism for with the Florida Bar, the SCOPE committee, with a number of judges and other attorneys, um, and that you're very involved uh, locally uh, with the community and with the youth community in Miami. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so I've been involved probably over 10 years now with the Embrace Girls Foundation, and it's a longstanding charity-based program here in Miami-Dade County. And it provides you know social skills, educational um, opportunities, life skills for young girls, teaching them etiquette, how to interview, how to have conversations with adults. And it also exposes them to professionals and politicians that they otherwise wouldn't meet so that they see what opportunities are available and that they uh, consider these opportunities because some people don't even know about certain opportunities or jobs that are available because they've never been exposed or met someone in that profession. Well, as a first generation lawyer in your family, I'm sure that you can relay and give them a lot of good advice. Um, I know that you also are on the Leadership Academy Fellows. What is mm-hmm. that? Uh, so the Leadership Academy Fellows uh, was started by President um, Eugene Pettis. And it was a program that was or academy that was started to get attorneys from diverse backgrounds involved in the Florida Bar. And that's exactly what happened for me. Um, I'd heard about it for a number of years. It was suggested that I try it. And then I got to a point where I felt like, okay, I now can devote the time to the program. Um, I applied and it was one of the best decisions ever. You meet, um, it was 30 of us in the pro in the academy, people from all over the state of Florida. It, and for someone like me who did not grow up in Florida, I feel like this became my college experience in Florida. So now when um, I travel to Tampa, Tallahassee or anywhere in Florida, someone from my leadership class lives there. And God forbids if you go to the town and don't let them know that you're there. <laughs> and so um, I feel like I have friends and family throughout the state of Florida because of the Leadership Academy. And, you know, we constantly are in our group chat. They're like family going through the process of even trying to become a judge, biggest supporters, biggest supporters. And so we really look out for each other. We support what each other does. And it's just a great program. And also, too, I learned about more about the Florida Bar, about the different committees. And as a result of it, I did get involved with the uh, Florida Bar, hence the standing committee, uh, the professionalism standing committee is the one that I got involved in. Well, um, let's talk about your path to becoming a judge. What process did you take to um, to get through the JNC and ultimately appointed? Tell us about that. When I was at the state attorney's office, I remember there were some judges, specifically uh, Judge Bronwyn Miller. I was in front of her as a division chief for a number of years. And I remember one day, you know, her her having a conversation with me about applying to become a judge. She thought it would be a a great opportunity for me and that I would do well in the position. But at the time, I was really just focused on trying to get to the U.S. attorney's office because that's really what I wanted to do. And so I went there and it was a four year commitment. So for those four years, you know, I'm not going to be putting in to become a judge. I'm going to focus on my career here and, you know, learn. But as I was getting close to the end of that, I actually ended up speaking to uh, Judge Darren Gales, who's a United States District Court judge. And we were having a conversation and it was just kind of, you know, came up and it was he said, you know, when are you going to put in? And so, you know, that question literally led me to a couple of weeks later submitting an application and going through the process. And so, I, you know, I, I went through the appointment process. So I applied to the JNC. Um, I was fortunate enough to get an interview. I went through the interview. Um, the committee recommended me to the governor um, and then went up to Tallahassee to interview with the governor's general counsel and deputy counsels. 
the first time I put in for the circuit court seat. I did not get that seat, um, but they did fill that seat and some other ones that were available with some county court judges who were elevated. And so then those county court judges seats became available and I got one of those seats. Can you give any of our listeners advice if they were interested in going through the appointment process or the election process of the applications and how to prepare for the interviews? Mm-hmm. I would say if anyone, any interest at all, start with just pulling the application, print it and just look at it and see what information, because it asks for a lot of information, case information, attorney's information. So just to even get a roadmap in your mind as to how would you want to proceed and also see what they're look what they are looking for. So then you want to make sure that you are able to answer the questions that they are asking you. So I would definitely say do that. I would say talk to the members that's on the committee, especially now you're not even putting in. So the JNC is formed of members that are appointed, you know, by the governor and by the Florida bar. Just have a conversation with the members about the process and what are they looking for. And also too, I would say go watch an interview. Like the interviews are public. It's so funny. I didn't encourage anybody to go watch interviews when I was going through it. (laughs) But it is a good opportunity to go and just to see what the dynamics are like, um, where the person is sitting. And no different like when you're preparing to go to trial, you know, or especially for the first time and maybe in a new courtroom or a new judge, you might go see what the landscape is like. Where is the judge going to be? Where is the jury going to sit? Same thing, you know, if you're going to go through it. So I would definitely say those are good things. And also, too, um, Speak to people that went through the process as well. Um, I haven't went through an election yet. I'm actually um, gearing up to for my first election. So once I get through this, I'll be able to tell you more about the election process. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back on the podcast. <laughs> Gladly. I know that you went to Howard University. Um, how do you find going from Washington, D.C. to South Florida? Was that a transition for you? It was. I found South Florida to be a, a slower pace than in Washington, D.C. <laughs> it's a much faster pace than Tallahassee, let me tell you. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was a much slower pace. And it was also, too, just different because in D.C. I was in school. So I was always in school the seven years I was in D.C. Whereas when I moved to Miami, South Florida, it's at to start my career. So no longer do you have the confines of your school or activities to go to at school to meet people kind of thing. So I had to, you know, I grew up here. I became an adult here in Miami, sort of say. And so I feel like that was a different, that was a different transition for me, a different experience for me being here. Well, I know you were appointed in late 2019. You started on the bench and then only a few months later, uh, COVID hit everything was shut down. I'm sure that that was not what you imagined being a judge or practicing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What what did you start off doing as a county court judge and and how did you adapt to the the protocols that were put in place because of COVID? Mm -hmm. So, yes, I had just become a county court judge. Um, As a matter of fact, the week prior to the shutdown, I was in judicial college phase two in Orlando. So we drove back on a Friday from Orlando, myself, along with uh, two other judges that were appointed with me. We get back, we go to work on Monday and we're told, okay, everything's shutting down, go home. (laughs) So um, until they can figure out like how we're going to proceed. But immediately though, fortunately I had good people that are working with me. We just transitioned. We started off having telephonic hearings. 
immediately. So conference calls, trying to resolve any cases we could resolve. And then I think within a week or two, the Zoom platform was up and running. So we just transitioned right into Zoom. And I feel like we never stopped in my division. And it's become the norm for us to have hearings and to be in court from nine to five all day in hearings. And then I finish with the hearings and then go straight into Zoom meetings. <laughs> but yeah, it's been different because, you know, I expect us to be in a courtroom and um, especially starting out meeting um, new attorneys and, you know, just figuring things out for myself. But, you know, as with anything that comes in life, you learn to adjust. And that's what I've done. Well, hopefully we can we can get back into the courtroom sometime soon. Before we leave, I have one last question for you. If uh, a new attorney was coming into your courtroom, what advice would you have for for that attorney? Hmm. I would say, be prepared and be professional. And I say that because regardless of how new you are as an attorney, those are two things you can control. And I feel like wherever you go from that point on, if you people, if your reputation is that you are always prepared and you are professional, you can go into any industry, any area of the law, and that would be something that an employer will appreciate. And I will also say, too, because, you know, I've learned the importance of it, network, you know, finding mentors and networking. Very important. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today and your advice. Good luck to you in your election and stay safe. Thank you so much. This was great. All the best to you as well. Thank you. Next up is my conversation with the Honorable Gisela Laurent, who is a recently appointed circuit court judge in Orange County. Welcome, Judge Laurent. Then thank you for being on Never Contemplated. Uh, thank you, Judge Desai. I'm so happy to be here and share this time with you and everyone who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're they're all delighted. Um, I'm going to start in right at the beginning, and I know your parents are from the Dominican Republic. How did they end up in the U.S., and how did you end up in Orlando? Okay, well, long story short, basically, I think, you know, a lot of the Dominican immigrants, they come um, looking for an opportunity, you know, the American dream, and my parents are not any different. My father, um, his mom passed away when he was 10 years old, and he was left with his dad. And ultimately, there's at the time, I think there was 11 sisters and a brother. Now there's 17 sisters and a brother. But um, at that time, you know, my, de- my parents, my dad and his father were farmers. And basically, my grandfather farmed. My dad would sell, you know, vegetables on the side of the street. And they really wanted a better life. And they wanted to be able to provide for all the children. So my grandfather and my father, when he was about 12 years old, moved to New York City. And they were just working hard. My mom, same similar story. She was in Dominican Republic and my grandmother was also a widower. And so she ended up leaving my mom in a convent in the Dominican Republic and coming to New York City by herself. And then little by little, bringing her five daughters and, and her son to New York. My mom was one of the last ones to be able to come to New York. And so she was about nine when she was in the convent and then about 13 or 14 when she came to New York City. But like my father, she came to work. So she immediately started working at a doll factory in New York City and she never really got to go to school. Uh, My parents met in New York City, even though friends of friends, they all knew each other from Dominican Republic, but they met in New York City. My mom got married when she was 17. (laughs) so And they had me shortly, shortly thereafter. But my dad had the chance to open up a business in Dominican Republic. And I mean, 
in Ohio, sorry. And my mom hated Ohio. She also worked in a fact at the Ford Motor Company and assembly line in, in Ohio and it was cold and she wasn't used to it. And so one of my aunts moved to Orlando and my mom got it in her head that she wanted to move to Orlando also. So by the time I was, I was born in Cleveland and uh, by the time I was three years old, I was living in Orlando. I've been here ever since. Well, it sounds like you come from um, some hardworking roots. Um, it also sounds like you were probably the first uh, from your family to become a lawyer. Is that true? Oh, yeah. I was the first to graduate from high school, the first to go to college, the first to be a lawyer. Well, that is exciting. What made you decide to go to law school? You know, I always say my, my dad, when he moved to Orlando, he started a business. My mom did, too. She had a dry cleaning business. My dad had a um, auto body shop. and But where he was located, because he also loved of baseball. He had a little softball team. He just became a community leader. There wasn't that many Hispanics at the time in the early 80s here. And people would just use him as a resource to, you know, where do you find the travel agency? Where do you find this? Where do you find that? Where? And his business was always busy people asking him for advice. And so at a young age, I saw him as a community leader. And I wanted to be the same thing. But I, I had the passion for law. And so I, I believe by the time I was four or five years old, I was set, I was telling everybody I was going to be a judge. I just didn't know you had to be an attorney first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you ended up going to law school at University of Florida, which I think is where you got your undergraduate degree. Is that right? Yes. Keeping it simple. I love University of Florida and it works. I, I, I'm a double gator. <laughs> what was the experience like going from Orlando to Gainesville as a student being away from your family? for the first time? So, you know, it's twofold. One, I was excited to do that because I think that you'll know like little girls who who their parents keep a tight leash on them. They really want to be free. And so I was looking for that freedom more than I could even explain in words. Uh, my dad, though, he was pretty confident of you're not going anywhere. Um, in fact, I'd started out in Valencia. I did my first two years in community college because just my dad, my dad said, no, you're not leaving the house. You know, you're too young and it's not happening. And then uh, I resisted him so much. When I finally got to go to University of Florida, I was so excited. My dad still had the business. And so he would routinely make me, you know, he basically said I had to come home every weekend so I could help him with the business, and which, which meant I was the janitor. I was cleaning. I was, you know, reconciling receipts and I was uh, returning parts. And anytime I had a free day off, I had to come back. But then it just became a safety net. And I I never joined a sorority. I, I sort of regret that. I never, I was too involved in the beginning in undergrad. Um, I did join my last year, like student government, which I, I loved. But I just felt that I would run back home and I wouldn't blend in as much until my last year of, of um, school in Gainesville for undergrad. I started finding more people that looked like me and talked like me and, you know, had my similar cultural background. But I did feel a little bit out of place in the beginning. And I think that was because I didn't invest the time to get to know everybody. I would just go to class and then I would run home every weekend. But by the time I did law school, I was all in. And so I, I love games. So I love how beautiful it is. I love the people and how they bond together and everybody's wearing, you know, orange and blue. And it's just this great camaraderie in Gainesville. And now my daughters are at UF. I have two girls in college and I just love to go and visit them. And it's my second favorite city, I guess. 
Well, I think your student experience is similar to a lot of immigrant and first generation law students and students, because I think I shared some of the same patterns. And by the time I got to law school, I was fully invested in Gainesville also. So I know that we, that you talked a little bit about finding your people and people like you. Um, You just recently uh, were awarded Outstanding Jurist of the Year by the Hispanic Bar Association of Central Florida. You're involved in numerous diversity and inclusion committees with the Florida Bar and the and Orange County Bar. Why is it important to have diversity and to have people who look different on the bench? You know, it's the integrity of the process. I think that you have to be able to trust the process. And if you think it's leaning one way, you know, and let's just use the stereotypical example, you know, judges used to be white males. You know, if, if it's if it's only just only white males, then everybody else feels excluded when they come in front of the court. I think that the more diversity that you have, when someone looks at the picture of the, we are the judges, you know, we are the teachers, you know, we are the school board, whatever it is, when it's diverse, then anybody that comes before that, that panel or that board or the judiciary can feel like I have a chance of being heard and understood because, you know, there's no denying that your life experiences tint your perspective. And for someone to stand in front of a defendant or a plaintiff or a witness and, and who can't even fathom the situation, then they can't understand the facts of the case. And we have to apply the facts of the case to the law at hand. Was there anybody who you looked at as a mentor when you were coming up through the legal process and before you became a judge? Oh, I was blessed to have so many. You know, I think I thirsted for examples and I and I clenched onto them whether they liked it or not. I'm that kind of person. I guess, you know, I'm the typical hugger. So uh, <laughs> um, my first, first mentor was actually, uh, she's now a judge as, as well, but she hired she hired me when I was at the public defender's office and, and you know, she's a white female uh, and I'm a Hispanic female. But the fact that she also grew up in the area that I grew up, which is a lower income Pine Hills, which is a lower income area of Orlando. And, you know, she had uh, so much legal knowledge. And I love the way how she, you know, always said, you know, you start with the statute, you work yourself from there. And, and she was feisty, too. So she was, she had earned her respect and so I, I loved that about her and I emulated that in, from her. Um, and then I would see, you know, when I appeared before the first Hispanic judge, I got a chance to appear before him. You know, that was a great experience. And, and the fact that he acknowledged that I was so prepared for court and that he was so impressed with me, then that kind of set a bar high that I never wanted to disappoint him because I didn't want him to think like, this is not what I expected in a Hispanic attorney. So I was always working very hard to make sure that he always saw that I was more prepared than the last time. So I had to outdo myself every time. And I think that was great. I've always loved, loved difficult judges for some reason. That's like, my dad was so strict. I think that I I loved that. And so it made me push myself and be ready. And I would garner respect. So I would, I would, every time I would appear before a judge, they were difficult or if they had a reputation for being difficult, I wanted to know them. I wanted to understand them. I wanted to see what they were doing. And so I think that made me work harder. And I used that as a mentorship experience because I was always trying to 
I'm a lifelong learner. So, well, let's give shout outs to your to your mentors. I don't think you mentioned their name, but who was the woman that hired you at the public defender's office? Her name is Jennifer Harris. She was Jennifer Davis back then, but she's Jennifer Harris now. She's amazing, amazing. And how um, how was working at the public defender's office? Oh, that I loved it. You know, I think that coming from you know a low income family where, where my parents worked seven days a week, I had to pay raise myself and my and take care of my sisters and go to school. I was a latchkey kid from six. I was cooking at a young age too. I've always had the mentality that I could have been them or they could have been me. It was it's just the luck of the cards, I guess. And for me to be there as an advocate in the trenches with people who have had so many different backgrounds and experiences, I truly appreciated the process. Now I will say I was a single mom at the time. And so my life, my term at the public defender's office didn't last long because, you know, I think public defenders and state attorneys are underpaid. But, uh, and I had to go into private practice to support my two daughters. And so I was only a public defender for 10 months, but that was a lot of trials in those 10 months. (laughs) What was it like going into private practice and what kind of practice did you do? So I truly enjoyed being in private practice. I, I, I felt that as a public defender, you didn't get to choose your client. They didn't get to choose you. Um, It was just kind of like, you know, a card system, like passing out the card and see which one you get. But in private practice, it is a true fit. It's a relationship. And people come and they meet with you and they tell you their life story and their positions, perspectives. And you can decide whether you want that case or not. And then if you accept the case, you know, there had to be this trust because I could say, I don't want you as a client anymore. They could say they didn't want me as a lawyer anymore. So it was an evolving relationship. And I was really good at what I was doing. So I mostly my cases were referral-based. And that's the best type of client to have is when it's been referred to you. So I truly, truly enjoyed my private practice experience. I did what I called service boutique once I went on my own. Because I did family law and criminal defense, and then things that stemmed out of that. So if their family law issues led to immigration issues, I would do that. But that was at the heart of my practice. You know, if their family or their divorce issues led to a bankruptcy, I would do that. But that wasn't, again, not the heart of my practice. And so it was a full service, I guess, family boutique. What advice would you give a young attorney who wanted to start their own practice? The best advice that I receive, keep your <laughs> overhead low. Keep your overhead low. That's the most important thing. I had a little 800-square-foot uh, office and two paralegals, and, and we were amazing. The stress of having to have a high overhead uh, ruins people and and causes them to you know, fail. But I think you keep your overhead low. And, you know, you owe and customer service, you know, at the end of the day, you're selling a product. It's you. And if you have your clients leave the case feeling like, wow, this person was always honest and upfront with me. They always communicated with me. They will start referring you cases and then you don't have to hunt. I, I would have to reject some people sometimes, but I think I treat everybody with so much love and respect that they they were looking for clients to give to me. And I would be like, stop. <laughs> well, I know you had a very successful private practice. What triggered you to want to become a judge and go through that process? And how did you get through that the appointment process? So Judge Desai, I remember I said that was always the first goal was to be the judge. And I did I as a child, of course, didn't know that you had to be a lawyer first. So 
I started doing my research in high school, I found out, you know, you have to be a lawyer to be a judge. And so I said, okay, so I'll do that. And when um, I found out in law school that you had to be a lawyer for five years before you became a judge, you know, in my fifth year, I was just loving private practice and I was doing a lot of great things and I didn't think about it. By my seventh year, I said, okay, it's time now to apply. I'm ready. But back then, you know, the first person who was my vetter told me, you're so cute. So I basically said for applying, <laughs> I always had a young face. You are very cute, but that doesn't make you qualified to be a judge. Exactly. And I said, you know, I was told there was an unwritten rule. And the unwritten rule was you had to have 10 years of practice for uh, county court and you had to have 20 years for circuit court. So go back, you know, enjoy your practice and come back later. And, you know, it's funny because at the time I really did believe that because the person who was telling me that I trusted and, and looked up to. And uh, I went back out there and just kept working for us. I said, okay, I was enjoying my practice anyways. And I waited till I had 10 years of experience to apply again. And I found the appointment process to be very, very um, intriguing, the process, the dynamics. And I was working really hard towards it. But then there was an opportunity for an open seat for me to run. And I said, this is what I'm going to do because I'm a people person. And I know this community back and forth, and and I and I'm, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. So I got it in my head that I needed time to learn the process because I'm I'm also you know an avid learner, and so I actually filed almost about a year and a half prior to the election and campaigned the whole time. So I was elected my first time for county court, and then you know after being county court for four years, opportunity opened up for me to apply. By that time, I definitely had my twenty years. <laughs> Uh, well, not exactly. 2018. I'm, I've been now in, I got, I uh, you don't became have to date yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and so I applied for the appointment and I was so honored to be uh, elevated by Aranda Santos. I'm actually the first female Hispanic to ever be appointed in the Ninth Circuit by any governor. Well, congratulations. I know that you are an inspiration to not only Hispanic women, but all young women and people from your area. It looks like you also are very active in moot court competitions and teen court. Tell us about why you do that. Okay. That, and I'm so happy you asked that because as I told you before, you know, I went to what they call a pipeline to prison high school. In fact, we have a board meeting tonight. Um, I'm still very involved with my high school. And my parents worked seven days a week, and I don't take anything away from that. They did it because they had to. They wanted to give us a future. But they really weren't there during the day. I could have gotten into a lot of trouble if I wanted to. I know a lot of kids who were really dear friends of mine who did get into a I know I have friends who are serving life prison sentences. And so as much as I can, I love to be involved with youth, especially youth who, who are growing up in high crime areas who unfortunately don't have the advantages that I took um, or the roads that I that I took or, or that somebody paved for me, whether it be a teacher or whether it be a neighbor or whether it be somebody, because like my parents didn't speak the language and they weren't they weren't home. They love they can give me all the love that they wanted, but they couldn't give me the experiences or the opportunities how to find them. And so I love to, I was appointed by the governor in 2015 to serve on the Juvenile Justice Delinquency Prevention State Advisory Group. It's one of the best things I think that I can do for uh, youth is to help find great prevention programs, make sure that they're funded. 
so that kids have an opportunity to do that. Um, and I also am a moderator for many of the Bridge the Gap discussions, which is where youth from low-income areas like myself have the opportunity to open up a dialogue with law enforcement to see how they can take better approaches to discussing things or investigating things with children, youth, to not lead in so much, you know, this disparity of arrests between um, African-American, Hispanic-American, you know, youth from low-income areas, and just looking for ways to just bring trust, specifically between the youth and law enforcement, and to open the dialogue up. And so I have a, he- a big, big heart for that. I wish every child could have the opportunities that I had and I um, try to take, I take on any projects that involve that. Can you give us any names of programs or groups in Orlando or the Central Florida area that uh, where attorneys can donate their time or efforts to help juveniles and the kind of programs that you've just been talking about? So Bridge the Gap is something that I love. They're roundtable discussions. They can, attorneys can even set up their own um, you know, I guess you don't have to go through the, the work of setting up their own, but just having the dialogue with different organizations. The Great Oaks Village also is where some of the, the troubled youth go. I'll, I think that, you know, teaching, a lot of uh, people like to volunteer for teaching at local schools, but there's the alternative schools, and they really do need people to come to them and talk about careers because it's important for the kids who, you know, were quote-unquote at-risk youth. Um at the alternative schools who may feel like they don't have that many opportunities and may just try to get a certificate of something. And that's fine too, if that's what they want, but no, they don't know what they want. They haven't had that exposure. And um, what else? Oh, teen court. Teen court is amazing. You know, and, and, and that's a, that's a place where people actually do come there with actual real crimes that they've committed. And this is a diversion program. And so this is an opportunity to interact with a real lawyer. I didn't get ever meet an attorney until I was in law school. I never met one before. And so I think it's important, you know, teen court is a great opportunity to have a personal touch to somebody and really change the trajectory of where they're going. Last question. If you had one piece of advice, or you don't have to limit it to one, but if you had any advice for a new attorney in your courtroom, what would it be? Yeah, I guess it goes back to what I was shown by the judges is, you know, you can never be too prepared. I think that goes a long way. And and what I've seen and what I've actually experienced is, you know, as a young lawyer, whether you're um, shy, you know, have a shy body type or you feel look shy or whether you're female. I didn't want to say that first. That's the first thing I thought was, you know, you're female, you're shy, you're smaller, less experienced. You know, there may be some people who may try to take advantage of you because they think they can get one over on you in the law. And it's just a shame that they would think that. But that can be easily corrected by being prepared. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I can give you specific examples. You'd be probably floored. But since I always had a young look to myself and I'm a female, maybe become Hispanic, I don't know. But I have had attorneys, older attorneys or older male attorneys when I was younger, you know, really think they were going to, you know, hey, sweetheart, let me show you how this works. And I call that little girling. (laughs) Yeah, little little girling. Yeah. And I would just, you know, and someone would actually get nasty and yell and scream, but I would always just smile and say, well, let's see what the judge has to say. And when you go into that courtroom, extremely prepared with everything, 
you end up shutting everybody's mouth up because, and you don't have to scream, yell, hang up phones on people. Just be prepared that you can't replace that. Well, thank you, Judge Laurent, for your time and your smile um, and your advice and your inspiration. Oh, thank you for doing this. You're doing great work with these podcasts. I I love it. (laughs) Stay safe and be well. You too. Next up is my conversation with the Honorable Dahlia Weiss, who is a circuit court judge for the 15th Circuit in Palm Beach County. She's been on the bench since 2012. Welcome, Judge Weiss, to Never Contemplated, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Of course. So I want to start at the beginning, and I understand that your parents immigrated from South America, and you were born and and settled in 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 South Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents? Sure. My mother came from Montevideo, Uruguay, and my father from Buenos Aires, Argentina. And those are pretty close to one another. My parents met and married and lived in Montevideo, Uruguay. And my mother uh, went to law school while she was also um, caring for firstborn, who's my older brother. So she was a practicing attorney there back in the late 50s, early 60s. And when did they come to the U.S.? So they came to the U.S. via Israel. Uh, They moved to Israel for a number of years and moved to the United States right around 1969 or thereabouts. Uh, They were in Israel through the 67 war came to the United States, and then I was born um, in New Jersey. I'm the only American born in my family. And we moved to Central Florida in 1976 when I was a little girl. So I was raised in the Central Florida area, in the Daytona Beach area, actually. And then I became a prosecutor after graduating from Villanova School of Law. And um, my first job out of law school was as a prosecutor in Putnam County, which is part of the Seventh Circuit, which was uh, my hometown circuit. And then after a year, I moved to Palm Beach County to be an assistant state attorney here. And I did that for about 17 years. Okay, well, we'll get I'd love to explore all of that with you. But I want to go back to your mother. Is she the reason why you went to law school? She is a lot of the reason why I went to law school. My mom, who passed away six years ago, was my biggest role model. She was a very strong woman and went to law school when it was kind of rare to see a woman. And she was a young wife and mom. Um, She was, you know, juggling a lot. And uh, she inspired me to want to study the law. My brother also went to law school in the United States, actually at the University of Miami. So Law was kind of something that was implanted into my head at a very early age. And I kind of always knew that that is what I wanted to do. I just wasn't sure exactly what type of law I wanted to practice, but I liked the uh, analytical reasoning that lawyers have to employ to do their jobs. So, yes, my mom was a huge inspiration for me. You stated earlier that you were a prosecutor. I know you were a prosecutor for 17 years before you joined the circuit court. Tell us about your work as a prosecutor. I understand that you were in the SUV unit, which is fascinating and sad, I'm sure. It is. So it's the SVU, actually. 
Yes. So I, I spent about seven years in the special victims unit and I ran the unit for a few years as well. And in that unit, we handled all the cases that you would think of sexual crime, sexual assault, any crimes against children, whether it be sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse. We handled those. Um, We also handled homicide cases involving children, whether it be uh, a shaken baby type of case, whether it be the type of case where somebody leaves the child in the car and, you know, in the car seat and forgets that the baby is there. Um, Really, any serious crime against a child uh, that unit handled. So I found that work to be really, really challenging, but also very fulfilling work as well. What made you decide to apply for the judicial position? So I was given a chance after running the SVU for a while to uh, get promoted to be the chief of the county court at the prosecutor's office. And I thought that I was doing what I wanted to do for the rest of my career, but I surprised myself and jumped at the chance to run the county court at the prosecutor's office. And because I reached more lawyers and I got to run the intern program and really got to satisfy the desire to do a lot of mentoring and training in the county court, I did that for about a year. And then I um, started looking at what can I do with with this, you know, breadth of experience. And um, that is when I started applying to the county court bench. And on my second try, I got the job and I sat on the county court bench for four years and I did civil and criminal and really enjoyed it. And then at that point, I started thinking about my background doing serious uh, circuit court type cases and felt ready to take on that challenge if they would have me. So that's after four years on the bench, I then applied to be appointed to the circuit bench and was uh, lucky enough to get appointed in 2016. You were the on the county court bench. I know that you uh, served in the criminal section And because of your experience, both on the circuit and county level in criminal court, um, you're involved in the MacArthur Grant Project, or um, which was awarded to the 15th Circuit uh, or Palm Beach County Court. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The bottom line is we were awarded a grant here to have this area targeted to see what we could do to reduce inmate population in our county jail and to look at racial disparities and see what we can do to improve those. So uh, we have all of the stakeholders involved. We have the elected public defender, the elected state attorney, members of law enforcement, probation, people from the jail. We have mental health, you name it. We're all a part of this team and we meet regularly and we have subcommittees you know, I'm a member of the core team. So there are judges that are also involved that do first appearances at our jail because that's really what we look at. We look at folks that are initially coming into the jail. Who are they? Why are they here? Is it a mental health issue? 
Is it a homelessness issue? You know, what's really going on and how can we divert those people and try to keep them out of the jail? So that's a very interesting organization to be a part of. And I've learned a lot doing it. And we all have unique perspectives uh, in how we view this system. But we all agree that we can do better. Well, Judge Weiss, I want to ask you one last question. What advice do you have for new attorneys entering your courtroom? All you have is your reputation. Don't blow it on one case. <laughs> that, that seems like sage advice. I want to thank you for your interview today. I know we've had some technical difficulties, but I appreciate your patience. And uh, thank you for all the work that you do. Stay safe. Thank you. Likewise, same to you. And I appreciate the opportunity to do this. Thank you. Next up is my conversation with the Honorable Patricia Barksdale, who is a United States District Court Magistrate for the Middle District and has had that position since 2013. Good morning, Judge Barksdale, and thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Judge Desai. Thank you for having me. Of course. First off, I know that you are currently in Jacksonville, and I wanted to know, are you originally from Florida or are you from elsewhere? I was born in Washington, D.C., my father was a foreign service officer with the State Department. He retired in 1978 and loaded my family. We have six kids in the family on the auto train and moved to Cocoa Beach, Florida, where my mom started a job with NASA and the then new space shuttle program. And what kind of work did uh, she do for NASA? She, I wanted to say she, she was an astronaut when I was little, but she really was, and it was not <laughs> much more boring than that sort of an administrative type role. Well, that's still exciting to live in that area and have your mother involved in that. Um, how did you end up in law school? I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer and a judge, really, even before I knew what those jobs entailed. I had a little tiny t-shirt when I was little that said lawyers never lose their appeal. And everybody gave me attention when I wore that t-shirt. And so it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, but I followed my older brother and sister to the University of Florida, uh, studied American studies, which was an interdisciplinary major at the university, and then went straight to law school from there. And then I know that you worked in uh, for CSX, which is a major railroad line. What was that like? I did. So I worked for a law, a big law firm in Jacksonville, and one of their clients was CSX. So I transitioned from working for CSX at the law firm to working in-house at CSX. And it was a wonderful experience. It was a different experience, but wonderful. I used to say the best kept secret in Jacksonville or the best law firm was uh, in CSX. I worked with wonderful people uh, doing a variety of things, litigation, transactional work, labor law, contracts, and everything in between. We also got to wear hard hats and steel-toed boots and travel on the train up to Brunswick and other areas. So really fun job as a lawyer. Well, seeing how you traveled on the auto train down to Florida, almost full circle. Yes. I know that you are a magistrate judge uh, for the Middle District. For some of our listeners who don't practice federal law, what does a, a federal magistrate do? Magistrate judge does a lot of what the district judges do. Uh, we do civil, we do criminal, we do administrative appeals, primarily social security, and everything in between. 
The only thing we can't do that a district judge does is uh, felony trials and felony sentencings. And so even if the parties were to consent, we cannot do those by law. Uh, but if the parties consent, we can do anything the district judge does except for those. Um, and we do a lot of the upfront work in cases, almost handing the case to the district judge after all of this, all of the upfront work is done. The uh, preliminary conferences, the discovery disputes, that type of thing. And then we hand it to the district judge to take care of the motion for summary judgment or a trial or in a criminal case, the sentencing hearing. Oftentimes in federal court, the in a criminal matter, the defendant will see the magistrate judge more often than the district judge. Uh, sometimes if they do a, a plea, uh, the district judge will see them for the first time at sentencing. Well, I know right after law school, you clerked for an 11th Circuit judge. What kind of experience or how was that coming right out of law school? And do you think that that influenced your decision to, to want to become a judge later in the federal courts? Yes, it did influence my decision, although that was already set in stone from the time I was little. <laughs> but it, it definitely bolstered that decision. I clerked for the Honorable Emmett Cox, who uh, passed away this past month. Um, and the experience was incredible, amazing. I think most law clerks uh, for a judge have a similar experience, but Judge Cox was a kind person, a brilliant person, a professional person, and a great mentor to me. And so that experience, uh, clerking for him and traveling to Atlanta to hear oral arguments, it was just a really, really wonderful job. I loved every second of it. Well, I know um, it's hard to travel now and that I'm sure the hearings that we all have been doing by Zoom. Can you tell me a little bit about what your court is doing and, and how you're handling the pandemic at the courthouse? Civil matters. Uh, I have often, even before the pandemic, conducted hearings by telephone. I continue to do that through the pandemic. In criminal matters, it's a little more difficult to have the defendant here virtually, especially when they've been arrested and are housed at a local jail facility. We've made some adjustments as we can, but we've had a combination of in-person, Zoom, and telephone hearings. So the bottom line is during the pandemic, if we can hold a proceeding virtually, we do. If we can't, we um, hold the conduct the hearing in person, but try to use as many safety precautions as we can. Well, I know that we both serve on the standing committee for professionalism with the Florida Bar, um, and that's how we have met and are conducting all of our interviews today with the various judges that are on that committee. What uh, motivated you or encouraged you to join that committee? And what other activities do you do to promote professionalism in Jacksonville and your legal community? Professionalism across the board is important, whether you're in state or federal or county or any type of practice. Um, it's, I think it's near and dear to most lawyers and judges' hearts. It just is a committee that spoke to me. When I looked at the list of all the committees the Florida Bar has, I thought that would be one that I'd like to be on. Uh, beyond that committee, uh, I've worked for many years with the Inns of Court, whose primary mission is mentorship 
professionalism in the practice of law. And of course, the Federal Bar Association and the local Jacksonville chapter, which provide uh, numerous CLE events to promote professionalism. And I, I know that you also are involved in um, not only the federal bar, but civics education, and that Justice Roberts has an initiative for the judiciary to make the community aware of Article Three and the judicial branch in general. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. In his 2019 annual report, Chief Justice Roberts uh, promoted the idea of civics education and ensuring as judges that we educate the public about our role in the government, the third branch. What do we do? What's the importance of the judiciary? What's the role of the judiciary? And so he called on judges to take an active part in educating the community about what we do. And so I I, I have always thought that's a calling for judges and try to do that in a variety of ways. Uh, the Second Circuit is sort of the leader in this initiative. They have um, something that we borrowed, kind of took to our district, which is historic reenactments of various trials. That's a fun way to teach students and teachers about the judiciary and the court system. Uh, we do fun things. We had a Bill of Rights celebration or birthday party in the courthouse for young kids with the birthday cake and flags and an art contest. We have an essay contest. Uh, Judge Howard takes the lead on that uh, for high school students, offering them cash prizes for their essays on civics. And so just a variety of things. We try to make it interesting and age appropriate, depending on who the audience is. Is there anything that local attorneys in Jacksonville can do to uh, support that civics education program and other programs that you, that the federal court is doing there? Absolutely. And we, we directly call on lawyers who practice in federal court to assist us with these programs. Recently, we did a historic reenactment of the trial of Susan B. Anthony to celebrate the centennial anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And for that, I was calling lawyers directly. Will you play this role? Will you play this role? Will you do this? Will you help with this? And lawyers have been very, very helpful with that. The Florida Bar itself also has a number of uh, civics education initiatives. And lawyers throughout the state of Florida have been really good about volunteering for those initiatives. That's great. I want to turn back uh, in previous podcasts that we've had. We we interviewed Judge Seitz from the Southern District and Judge um, Howard from the Middle District, and they talked a little bit about the nomination process for Article Three judges and how they were nominated. I know that after you had been a magistrate for a number of years, that you were also nominated for an Article Three judicial position, and it didn't go all the way through. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and what people who are thinking about becoming magistrates or judges should do to to prepare themselves for that kind of experience. It's hard to prepare for that experience. And, And the script is sort of being rewritten. So it changes with every administration and it's a little bit different now. But when I applied, you applied to the Judicial Nominating Commission that uh, was made up of lawyers uh, and laypersons who were put on that commission by then Senator Nelson and Senator Rubio. 
From there, that commission provided the senators with names. We interviewed with the senators themselves, which is really interesting and fun. I really enjoyed that process. My mother, who had worked for the space shuttle program, really liked Senator Nelson because he went up on the space shuttle. And so she had a lot of familiarity with him. And she thought, even if I didn't get the position, at least I got to interview with with the senator who went up on the space shuttle. Um, From there, we did have interviews at the White House and uh, also very exciting, very fun. Drove my family up one spring break for that in the car. And, um, you know, three kids in the car, all the luggage, just jump out and interview at the White House. So (laughs) kind of funny, uh, but um, just really interesting, really uh, rewarding experience. And I was glad I went through it. It is time consuming. It is sort of expensive. You pay for everything on your own for all of this travel. And you certainly go through a lot of vetting. So I think there's three different vetting processes. And um, and back to your question, if you can prepare for it, I would say you write down all of your speaking engagements, no matter how small, uh, where they were, what you spoke on, and whether there's a recording or anything to document that, because that will come in handy later when you have to document all of that. Also writing down lists of important trials or appeals or cases that you worked on because you'll have to list those. Um, And then keeping in mind that because of the vetting, there's a lot of discussion with people you practice with and work with. And, you know, if it's not already uh, evident, you should always act with professionalism because anything to the contrary will come out in this process. Well, I think those are great tips that we haven't heard before in our podcast. So that's very helpful. Our final question is, if you had one piece of advice for a new attorney in your courtroom, what would that be? Wow, Judge Desai, just one piece, huh? (laughs) Okay. You can elaborate. It can be uh, subsets if you'd like your answers. Be prepared. That's an obvious one. I wanted to think of one that was not obvious, but that's <laughs> the best one to come into court prepared because as a result, you'll do a better job. You'll be more confident. Uh, you'll help the other side and the judge with the issue at hand. And it's something everybody can do with a little bit of time. They can be prepared. And so that's the that's the number one piece of advice. When I, when I did appellate work, that was the piece of advice our um, bosses or mentors would give us go in that courtroom as prepared to be, and you'll be able to hold your chin up and answer any question that's um, thrown at you. Well, I know you wanted to give me a little bit more. So, what advice do you have regarding getting involved for new attorneys with either community service or uh, bar service or professionalism in general? There are so many opportunities for new lawyers. They just have to find them and take some initiative. But certainly joining the local bar association, voluntary bar associations um, would be a good start. And from there, joining committees on those, uh, joining Florida bar committees, going to the Florida bar Ends of Court, of course, is close to my heart. That's always a wonderful one to join. And there's many, many ends of court, whether it's family law or general practice or what have you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I appreciate your patience in all of the advice that you've provided today. You made this easy on me, Judge Desai. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Take care and be safe. Thank you. You too. 
Our last segment is with the Honorable Carolyn Bell, who is a circuit court judge in Palm Beach County on the 15th Judicial Circuit. She was appointed in 2018. Welcome, Judge Bell, and thank you for being on Never Contemplated. Thank you so much for having me. I want to dive in right from the beginning. Um, I know that you are not from Florida and that you did your undergraduate degree at Berkeley. Are you from California? I grew up in California. I was actually born in New York, lived for a while in Utah, but I spent most of my formative years in California. And I did. I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, took a year off and then went back for law school and um, made my way. I first worked in Los Angeles for a couple of years for a big law firm made my way to Washington, D.C., where I ended up working for the Department of Justice. And then uh, my husband and I decided we wanted to be part of a community. And we were very fortunate. We were able to both get jobs as assistant U.S. attorneys here in West Palm Beach. And so we came. I I came sight unseen, actually. (laughs) Well, I want to go through each of those uh, transitions for you. But before we start, you took some time off before law school between undergrad in law school, and I know you traveled a lot. Tell us a little bit about where you traveled. Well, I spent the first six months traveling, sometimes by myself, sometimes with friends, with a backpack, all through Western Europe and Northern Africa, and through um, uh, also areas of um, the Middle East. And then I came back, uh, and then I ended up in the Middle East. I ended up on a kibbutz in Israel, where I lived for a while, And I worked um, doing all kinds of interesting things, everything from picking avocados and uh, artificially inseminating turkeys. That's that's (laughs) things you never thought you'd say you did. And I did all kinds of other uh, outdoor kinds of things, living on a kibbutz, and also ended up doing a lot of traveling then through the Middle East and... um, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience and came back and went back to law school in Berkeley. Well, I'm sure you learned a lot about dealing with people and also being self-reliant. You think that those travels have helped you in your law practice and also on the bench? You know, that is a great question. And the answer is absolutely yes. I consider that to be one of the most important years of my education for a very interesting reason. So when I was traveling, every morning I had to get up and, fig- and remember, this is before the days of the internet. Every morning I had to get up and figure out where I was going to sleep, where I was going to eat, how I was going to get places, how I was going to keep myself safe. Every one of these things required an enormous amount of effort on my part. And recognizing now that the people that come before me oftentimes have to figure these things out every day, it helps for me to have had that experience myself. So yes, absolutely, that was a very important part of my education. The other part of my education that uh, that helped was getting to meet people all over. I made it a point of uh, going out and learning a little bit of the language in every one of the countries I went to. And also, um, I read a lot of books. I, I made sure that I always had a book with me wherever I was. So it was a great year, very important for my education. Well, um, I'd love to... Uh read about your travels if you ever reported that (laughs) down. So you went to law school at Berkeley and then you went to Washington, D.C. after practicing a little time in California to um, the Department of Justice. Tell us what you did at DOJ. 
when I was at the Department of Justice, my number one assignment was with the tax division in the criminal section. And in that position, what I did was I went all over the country prosecuting cases that had some kind of a tax angle. And sometimes those were cases involving people who didn't pay their taxes. Sometimes they were cases involving, at the time we called them tax protesters. I think that there's another name for them now, but people that don't believe that the tax code is legitimate. And But most of the cases that I prosecuted were cases where tax was one aspect of things. So I ended up prosecuting this gigantic real estate fraud that had a tax angle to it. I ended up prosecuting a number of cases in Las Vegas involving, frankly, involving mobsters that had silent ownerships and interests in different casinos. I ended up prosecuting the largest drug organization in uh, Southern California. The heads of the organization were a number of fairly prominent politicians and law enforcement officers and other people of that ilk. Nobody could ever have them. They never had their hands on the drugs. So we ended up prosecuting them for tax crimes and really making an impact in that way. So it was a, it was a fabulous experience. And then in addition to that, I did a number of different details when I was in Washington. I worked for the United States Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. for a while. That's actually where I met my husband. Uh, they send they, they call us baby prosecutors. They send baby prosecutors there to learn how to be prosecutors, prosecuting misdemeanors in Washington, D.C., um, I also ended up doing a detail on the deputy attorney general staff. I was very instrumental in helping come up with different professionalism rules that are still followed to this day by the department. And I also helped to, to represent the Department of Justice and different individuals in hearings before Congress, probably before most people's time. But it, the, I was involved with what were called the Ruby Ridge hearings involving uh, different people who had issues with the government and uh, there were congressional hearings and I helped to represent the, the Department of Justice people who testified. And you also taught uh, as an adjunct, did you not? At, I think it was George Washington. I did. I did. My husband and I, we both taught as adjunct professors at George Washington University. We team taught uh, legal writing and also trial advocacy. And we always like to teach together because we would have the, the slightly different uh, takes on different things. And oftentimes the students would be very frustrated. Oh, but, but Professor Bell, I loved it when they called us professors. Professor Bell, you said this, and Professor Reinhardt, you said that. And we said, well, welcome to the real world. You're gonna, someday you're gonna have you know, one judge tell you this and another judge tell you that. And uh, <clears throat> when that happens, you gotta know how to focus on what that judge thinks is important. Well, um, you've mentioned your husband a few times, and um, I know that he is a magistrate, federal magistrate in the Southern District. And I think you said that I think he was sworn in the same week that you were nominated. How did you celebrate both of those things? It was a very exciting week. Um, He was he was sworn in as a United States magistrate judge. And this, the same week, uh, I got the call from Governor Scott telling me that I was being appointed as a circuit court judge. And uh, we did celebrate. We were we we felt like I, I mentioned to you, we came down to, to West Palm Beach, Florida, because we wanted to be part of a community. And uh, at that point, we, we felt like we had done what we had set out to do, which was to become active, meaningful parts of our community. So that was a really lovely way to uh, to celebrate. 
Well, were you both at the U.S. Attorney's Office or was it you that was there? We were both at the U.S. Attorney's Office when we first came down to West Palm Beach. And then he left about 10 years before we were both appointed and he was in private practice. In fact, our children used to tell people, mommy puts people in jail, daddy gets them out. (laughs) Don't come to dinner at our house unless you want to have, you know, arguments back and forth about whatever kinds of things. Yes, my children, my children, uh, yeah, to this day, they 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 know what it is to be cross-examined. <laughs> Are your children attorneys? <laughs> Emphatically, no. He's <laughs> <laughs> graduated from, from college a, a couple of years ago, and he's, well, because of the pandemic, he spent the year on our couch working as a software engineer for a big bank, and August, also on our couch this year, but he's, um, he's supposed to be a junior uh, at MIT, actually, studying math. So far away from law as you can get. Going back to the U.S. Attorney's Office, I know that you were actually the person in charge for teaching professionalism to other attorneys in that office. And I think the title you told me was Professional Responsibility Ethics Officer. I mean, that was a teaching position as well. Tell us what that entailed. Well, actually, that was more than a teaching position. The position was we called we were called pros, professional responsibility officers. And actually, I was that was one of the things that I did when I was in Washington was I helped to to get that program started. Every U.S. attorney's office has a number of professional responsibility officers. And what we do as professional responsibility officers is we advise people, advise assistant U.S. attorneys on professional ethics issues when they come up. So it could be anything from there's a conflict of interest, there's an issue with a represented party, to uh, discovery issues. So there were uh, pretty much every day, along with my regular docket, I was dealing with professional responsibility issues. And I also, in that capacity, did a lot of teaching. I also, that was why I ended up, as an assistant U.S. attorney here in Florida, I didn't have to be a member of the Florida Bar. But I took the Florida Bar People think I took the Florida bar so that I could become a judge or whatever else. I took the Florida bar actually because I wanted to be part of the uh, professional ethics committee of the Florida bar. And so I took the Florida bar, got on the professional ethics committee and actually ended up being the, the chairman of the professional ethics committee. And uh, that was very rewarding as well. So I did do a lot of teaching both in the U.S. Attorney's Office and actually outside for, for bar related groups on, on professional responsibility and ethics And as I said, I also did a lot of advising. Well, I know that the bar is very grateful for the work that you've done in that area. We also are on the standing committee uh, for professionalism under Florida Bar right now. Are there any other local groups or programs um, in Palm Beach for new attorneys to get involved in, whether it be to learn about professionalism or to give back to the legal community? Well, I've always been involved with the Palm Beach County Bar. Um, I've been on their professionalism committee, which I think is a great way to meet people who are also interested in the professional side of the of our profession. (laughs) And I've also been involved with Inns of Court, which is a lot of fun and another way to meet people and to uh, get involved with people who who take our profession as more than just a job. So those are two organizations that I strongly suggest people look into. Well, let's jump to being on the bench. You had tried out or applied for um, judicial positions in the past and didn't make it. And then, of course, you did in 2018. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what the process was like for not each of those times, but as a whole, what you learned from not getting the position and then getting the position? The first time that I applied, I I was always very fortunate. I always um, was selected by the judicial nominating committees or to to have my name sent up to uh, the governor. And what I what I didn't understand originally was that so much of the the process of at least of getting appointed to be a judge um, involves not just merit, you know, what, what you've done in the past, but also how involved you've been with the community. And so as an assistant U.S. attorney, I'd been involved with different things, but I hadn't really been that active. Um, and so I realized it was very important to be involved with the community in a very um, real sense. Um, I also was very fortunate as I went through the process, every time I would tell someone I was applying, whether it was someone that I worked with or someone that was opposing counsel or judges or whomever else, to a person, I'm I'm still so flattered and honored by this. Their response was, what can I do? Who can I call? So it it really, it, it is a process of not just doing your job and doing it to the best that you can, but also making sure that that you have good relationships with with everybody. One of the things that I also learned through this is that when you don't get something, it's not personal. What I still tell people is I am am purple and I am the best purple you're ever gonna meet. I make sure that there is no purple out there that is, is better than I am at being purple. But sometimes, whomever is it is that's making a decision about a job isn't looking for purple. Sometimes they're looking for blue. Sometimes they're looking for paisley or psychedelic or neon, or sometimes they're looking for unicorns. And if they're looking for any of those other things and they're not looking for purple, they're not going to pick purple. So be there, be your best purple. And when the time comes for that, somebody's looking for purple, they are going to pick you. So that's what I learned. You know, of course, when you don't get something, you lick your wounds a little bit because you you would have liked to have the position at that time. But I never took it personally because, like I said, I just I, I that was my philosophy. We're very fortunate that you didn't give up and you are on the bench now. I know that just talking briefly with you, one of the things that you're passionate about is uh, being on the juvenile drug court. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how rewarding that is for you? Sure. So when I became a circuit court judge, I'd been a federal prosecutor for decades at that point. Um, And I had done every single kind of federal crime that there was. I had been in private practice. I had done all kinds of different work, but I'd never dealt with juveniles before. And in fact, I still remember in my interview, they said, oh, what, where would you like to be placed? I said, you know, really anywhere except I think juvenile. So of course I came over to the circuit court and our chief judge said, ah, I'm gonna put you in the juvenile division <laughs> and um, best possible place for me, especially starting out. I knew nothing about it. A juvenile judge's job here in Palm Beach County is to do both delinquency, which are kids committing crimes and dependency, which is where the state has to come in and take children away from their parents. Um, very different areas. The law in each is rather complex um, and very different from each other, but always the focus is on children, on juveniles. Uh, one of the things that I do as the as a juvenile judge is I am in charge of the 15 judicial circuits. We call it delinquency drug court. 
So I have children in front of me who have drug problems and oftentimes because of those drug problems have also ended up having uh, issues with the law. And I am able to see those children start out in delinquency drug court with their issues and their problems. And through delinquency drug court, we're able to give them uh, the extra attention that helps them become successes. Our success rate is, I mean, obviously we have some children that aren't successful, but for the most part, the kids that we have uh, in delinquency drug court are able to go on after delinquency drug court. They don't have drug problems and they don't have issues with the, with the delinquency system anymore. We have uh, high school graduates. Most of our kids are high school graduates and we have college graduates. So I am very, very pleased with what we've done. One of the things that, that we found makes a real difference is children having an advocate or a mentor through delinquency drug court. And to the extent that members of the community can uh, volunteer in that kind of a capacity, it makes such a difference for these kids. That sounds very inspirational and, and rewarding. Before we leave, uh, I want to ask you one last question. If you had one piece of advice for a new attorney in your courtroom, what would that be? One piece of advice, I know that oftentimes people talk about how your reputation goes with you wherever you go. That is absolutely true. I know oftentimes people talk about how important it is when you're in a courtroom or really anywhere to treat your fellow counsel, fellow attorneys respectfully. I always call it following the golden rule. Treat them the way you want them to treat you. And I also think it's really important that you remember that for every litigant that's in a courtroom, it is for them the most important thing in their life. And it is for them a very stressful and scary place. So one of my, I don't know if it's my one piece of advice, but one of my big pieces of advice for people is to make sure when you're dealing with litigants in a courtroom that you are respectful of the litigant and of the, of the scariness that that person must be feeling at the time. One other piece of advice I'm gonna give, besides when you're in the courtroom, is I'm gonna talk about the importance of lunch. <laughs> the importance of lunch, that kind of goes back to what I was saying before about making sure that you're out there in the community. Make sure at least once a month, if not more often, that you have lunch with someone in the legal community that you don't know, because those people are going to be your mentors, and your network, not only professionally, but also personally. So make sure that whatever else you do, take that time to make those lunch dates with people that you don't already know. Well, I want to thank you, Judge Bell, for taking the time today to, to speak with us. It's been a pleasure. I hope you stay safe. Um, you too. Thank you. This concludes today's podcast, which is the last of the season while we take a break for the summer. It's been a difficult year for bar members, and we hope this series made it easier for you not only to satisfy your CLE professionalism requirements, but also gave you some inspiration and guidance in your practice and managing your various responsibilities. In the meantime, if you know of an attorney with an inspirational story and a passion for professionalism or have ideas for a future podcast show, let us know. I want to again thank the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism and Clay Shaw from the Florida Bar who make this show sound incredible. You can find links to the Center for Professionalism, scope, and information on the individual judges we talked to in today's podcast 
on the Florida Bar website under the Never Contemplated podcast page. Thank you again for listening and stay safe. Thank you.